The talk is about accepting change. I have a friend in Honolulu, uh, and she's a friend that I don't really know her family life at all. Um, She's in her, I think, 60s somewhere. I thought she was in her early 60s. I think maybe she's in her mid-60s now that I know this particular story about her. Uh, So just before Stephen and I left for here, she called me and was really having a difficult time. Uh, It was hard for her to reach out, very hard for her to reach out. And by talking with her, going to see her, uh, she told me that she regretted never having learned meditation from me all the years that she had known me. Uh, And I asked her what was going on, and her husband had been quite sick for about a year and a half, uh, but no one was really sure what was going on. So he had, it seemed like a stroke, but they said it wasn't a stroke, and then he had a massive infection, and finally um, he had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Uh, and so this is why she called it, it was this, she was falling apart. You know, she just couldn't face the next years of what she was facing with her companion of her, um, most of her life. So I asked her uh, how old he was, because I thought of her, you know, pretty, you know, 60 or 62. And she said, oh, he's 79. And I was kind of shocked, because from talking with her, it seemed like somehow having something like this happened for her just seemed like it was something so, you know, foreign, you know, that something (laughs) at 79 could happen like this. And I was kind of like thinking, God, didn't she kind of think about old age, you know, (laughs) 79? I mean, the possibility is there that this could happen. Uh, So I tried to kind of talk about that in as gentle a way as I could. And then she just had that look of the truth on her face, like it was a a look of utter grief. But she said, you know, I guess now I'm going to have to face reality. And I thought, you know, how lucky anyone is to get this chance to do the mindfulness practice early enough in life that we might have a little more uh, strength or resources to face that kind of change. I mean, I'm not underestimating how difficult the next years can be for her. Uh, And I've had some friends trying to teach her how to face the birth and death of a breath and the birth and death of sound and the birth and death of a step so that she can start trying to face this, um, such a significant, profound change in her life, in her husband's life. My mother died when I was um, 13, and it feels like it's taken my lifetime uh, to face that kind of change. I've been to her grave twice, recently in my life. I went yesterday. And this was the first time in being at her grave that I felt that there was a shift in 
a deeper kind of acceptance. You know, I was just standing there, and, and the grave is in this uh, forest of white pine trees, and it's like it's all alone. And she was quite alone in her life. Uh, and I felt that whole uh, picture of my own story, of the struggle with accepting her death and accepting her life. It was like acceptance of her death felt like accepting my own struggle to accept it. You know, it's just like I had um, a lot of judgment about my own struggle of that uh, process of acceptance. And finally there was this enough space to accept the struggle and to really accept that it happened, the whole story. It felt like a, a moment or moments of deep peace. I'd like to read a quotation from Thomas Merton. I appreciate him a lot, uh, his journals especially, because he expresses his struggles uh, very eloquently and clearly. And this um, quotation is, ex- it's, um, the, the feeling behind it is that he struggled so hard uh, to be allowed to be in solitude. It's kind of ironic, he chose to be a Trappist monk, but he was forced to live in a community of people a lot. Uh, and to get permission to do what you're doing uh, was really hard. Uh, so this is, this is from uh, volume five of his journals from 1963 to 1965. Uh, and the, in the journal a lot is that um, all of his struggles to uh, face the solitude he finally uh, was allowed to get. You know? So he, he fought for it and fought for it, but then <laughs> he had to deal with it. Um, So he said, how often in the last years I have thought of death. It has been present to me and I have understood it and known that I must die. Yet last night, only for a moment in passing, and so to speak without grimness or drama, I momentarily experienced the fact that I, this self, will soon simply not exist. A flash of the not-thereness of being dead, without fear or grief, without anything, just not there. And this, I suppose, is one of my first tastes of the fruit of solitude. And of course, the other thing is that I is not I. I am not this body, this self and I am not just my individual nature. But yet, I might as well be, so firmly am I rooted in it and identified with it, with this which will cease utterly to exist in its natural individuality. I love the way he expresses that paradox of having that glimpse of utter ephemeralness, and yet at the same time expressing how identified he is with the self, and how firmly rooted in this thing, 
what a paradox to be so firmly rooted in this thing that's so <laughs> utterly ephemeral. You know, it's amazing, you know, that we put ourselves through facing this. You know, it's wonderful. So we might have these glimpses of understanding the momentariness of life and yet have that sense. <laughs> I might as well be myself because I'm so identified with it. You know, it's such a great line. When my mother died, at that time in our culture, just, just pain, talking about pain, was unacceptable. And so to even speak of death was so unacceptable uh, that trying to face what was happening for her in my life, it was almost impossible. I mean, no one would talk about it. It was like the unspeakable. And so I had to really go deep within myself in that search to understand. Uh, And that um, not being able to find help was one of the most painful parts of that experience for me. And being out in nature helped. I could go out into the forest and see a tree that fell down and see how natural that is and how beautiful in some ways watching the dead trees become soil. You know, there was a way in which I could accept death and birth and life in that world. Yet I had to come back into the human world and come to grips with this change. It was very... um, Hard. When I found uh, this mindfulness practice, it was like I was in heaven. Now I finally was hearing a teaching that there was some context for understanding change, for understanding uh, death, uh, and to have the encouragement to face the truth of life, to face reality. One of the most profound teachings for me in this practice is uh, the second foundation of mindfulness, uh, to notice the constant change that we have no control over with each moment of consciousness. We have no idea if the next moment is going to be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Uh, It's just such a profound teaching that we all share. Anything that takes birth in this universe shares that um, impermanence. To have a teaching that can express um, so clearly that how we suffer is when we react to that to that change. So when we react to the passing of pleasure with attachment, it's just a temporary moment of suffering. It's that moment when the the heart contracts with attachment. We're holding on to to pleasure even though it's passing and that's how we suffer. And then with the arisal of pain, it's like uh, when we relate to pain by withdrawal or fear, that's the fear, we, we move away from it or we attack it, we push it away. Uh, it's that withdrawal from the, the pain or the pushing it away that's the suffering itself. So that reactive mind um, 
whenever that contraction of mind or search for security is happening, there's no peace. And so we start to see that uh, this um, attempt to find security through attachment or aversion, uh, the attempt to control life which is changing brings about the suffering. My first retreat, I had um, very profound glimpses at my own inability to cope with change. It's like I, I saw how most of my life I'd been running away from pain and that I, I didn't understand the relationship between uh, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, that change within consciousness itself and running away from pain. Uh, but I slowly, in my first retreats, uh, I had so much aversion to pain. You know, there was such, <laughs> there was so much uh, that I had to start to face it. No matter, I mean, I could, I could, uh, you know, there's that very familiar story of the person who was meditating and it was too hard, you know, so he went out to a stream, into a cabin, in the woods, and he was finally away from everybody and was sitting there uh, and he started rearranging the rocks in the stream. You know, <laughs> how many times do we do that on retreat where we think, well, I'll go upstairs and sit up there, it'll be better there. Or, you know, I'll go to my room, it'll be better there. You know, that's the story of my first retreats where I kept trying to find the place where no one would bother me. Uh, and it took me a long time to realize that it was aversion that was bothering me. <laughs> you know, if the aversion, if I, if I finally learned to be mindful of the aversion and let it come and go, I could sit anywhere. Uh, Stephen and I have been teaching young adult retreats for about 10 years now. At the end of the retreat, uh, we have a kind of formal ceremony in here where we make a circle. Uh, and anybody can come up and just say something brief. They're told that it needs to be brief. And then they ring the bell and they go to sit down. Each year somebody says something quite interesting. This year one young man came up and he said two words. He said, wonderful pain, rang the bell and sat down. Just to think of somebody, 16-year-old, coming here for a few days, five days, and being able to bow and ring a bell and to say that the retreat was wonderful pain. Have you been able to say that today? That's what I love about the Buddha's teaching, that we can go from that conditioning, which is eons of conditioning, that says pain isn't okay, even though it's a reality in this world, to realizing that when we face it and can work with it, that it's wonderful. Because it's liberating. Acceptance of pain, there's a reason for it. It's because it's the truth of life. It's part of the truth of life. 
When I was in uh, Sagain, Burma, this year in January, at the beginning of the retreat, I had a little time to go off wandering into these um, hills filled with monasteries and nunneries. I found a pagoda that no one was at. You know, it's like the most amazing part of it is that these places are so... um, You can find so much solitude there within these beautiful pagodas, ancient pagodas. Uh, So I found a place that I loved, very quiet, peaceful. And I was sitting there, uh, and I heard some rustling of leaves. You know, I noticed, I noted hearing, and then I heard, you know, I heard kind of the rustling a little closer. And then I felt something walking on my hand. So I opened my eyes and looked down. And uh, at the moment that I looked down, the squirrel that had landed on my hand uh, looked at me. (laughs) And it was one of those moments of recognition, uh, but the squirrel was not happy. (laughs) It was just so much fear. It was was terror. It was just this moment of seeing total terror. The squirrel went running off. You know, and I went back to sitting. Um, About two days later, I went back up there, and I was sitting very happy, quiet, peaceful, and I could hear this rustling of leaves again. Uh, so I was with, with hearing, and then it, it wasn't pure exploration. You know, papancha started, and I was like, oh, that must be the squirrel, okay. And then it sounded like an elephant. <laughs> so I was really trying not to open my eyes, and I was like, elephant, elephant. <laughs> And the elephant started getting closer, closer, uh, and I wanted to, I could feel that wanting to open my eyes, wanting, wanting. Finally, it just sounded so loud. I opened my eyes, uh, and there was a monk um, walking through the thorn bushes uh, off around where I was uh, so he wouldn't go by me and disturb my meditation practice. And it was, um, again, it was one of those moments uh, where, you know, many thoughts come through of understanding. It was like um, thinking about my childhood and the little support that I had received for uh, facing my mother's cancer and death. Uh, and to, to find myself with a stranger on this planet as far away as I could from Massachusetts, where I was born, uh, and to meet somebody who had that understanding of wanting to support my freedom. And to be willing to walk through thorn bushes so that he wouldn't disturb my practice. You know, that's, that's a lovely moment. Uh, and I was just, I stood up and I was like, please, you know, come by. Uh, and we just bowed, no language, but just that deep, um, wishing each other well on the journey. How does mindfulness practice help us to face change? All of us probably have an understanding of the rhythm between um, 
being lost in thinking, being identified with a thought or a story, and needing to anchor the attention. I mean, how many times do we do that? Uh, And then when the mind becomes less disturbed, then we are able to really be mindful. We're able to be with momentary change. We're able to be protected enough by the mindfulness to face change. You know, so that's the kind of rhythm. If you look at the image of anchor, anchor is such a great image. It's like we're lost at sea, the mind is scattered, disturbed. We anchor. And maybe we anchor with sound, not with a breath. But it's some way, uh, it's like a compromise in facing change. The breath moves, sound moves, but we stay with it. We come back to it over and over again until the attention is stabilized. That stabilization is a rest for the mind. It's a support. And it's, it's supposed to be um, enough support so that at some point when the mindfulness is there again, we can face the momentariness of change. One of the rhythms of meditation is letting this process happen where we're lost clear, confused, over and over and over again, that there's a deep acceptance of that change itself. We stop uh, identifying uh, with being lost, or with being clear, or being confused. So I think of anchoring the attention as like a nest. No. (laughs) Before the birds fly out of the nest, they have to be in the nest. Uh, And if you think of anchoring like one home, it's one kind of home in meditation. And I think of this as sort of the poetry of mindfulness. You know, there's a kind of um, beauty in knowing when we are meant to be anchored. And it's not personal. It's not like it's a failure or defeat. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do, to anchor the attention. When I'm really lost in something, Uh, and I'm really in a storm, and I'm being battered against the rocks, I'm so grateful for all the practice I've done to just be with a breath. Please don't underestimate that. To, To be able to do that is one of the best gifts that you'll ever develop. There's nothing like it. When push comes to shove, <laughs> to be able to notice a breath come and go by itself will enable you to face anything. The pure exploration of mindfulness is like flying. You know, it's like flying out of the nest for a while. And it's wonderful. When it's effortless, we feel really clear. It's a different kind of home. It's like we're home in the universe with whatever happens. Uh, The more we know how to come back to an anchor and we have the strength and support of that nest or home, the more we're able to fly. So we have that rhythm of nesting, flying, nesting, flying. And both are really okay. Both are important. If we look at how pure exploration or mindfulness happens, uh, one way to describe that process is um, recognition, acceptance, 
interest, and non-identification. So if you think of the word rain, this is not meant to be a checklist. It's not meant at all for... I'm not suggesting that you sit down and you think, well, is recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification happening? And it become very analytical. But when those four aspects of mindfulness are present, you'll feel like you're really able to explore. You know, you're able to leave the nest. You're able to be with the momentariness of experience. For example... Say we feel confused or lost or identified. Um, That moment when we can note or recognize lost or identified, uh, it's like it's half the battle. It's amazing when we can just realize something, we recognize something. It's like there's freedom there. Uh, But maybe there's still resistance to being lost. The difference between acceptance and resistance is the degree with how much we're suffering. So if we're accepting being lost, it's like that experience is totally okay. It's just like the breath. The breath comes and goes by itself. The experience of being lost or being confused just comes and goes by itself. Uh, And with acceptance, we don't have to fiddle with it anymore. You don't have to mess with it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to do anything with it. You just let it be. And it's it's like, ah, you can see the difference between that recognition and then the acceptance. There's freedom there. Interest. We can't fake interest. You know, you know that place where you'd think, well, I'd love to be interested in being confused, but... <laughs> you know, I'm really not. <laughs> uh, you can't make interest happen, but, but you can kind of, if acceptance is happening, sometimes there can be a real ease at some point, a shift, or sometimes it's sudden to being interested in the experience. What is the experience of being lost or being confused, free from any idea about it? It can be exciting to be experiencing confusion when there's no judgment and when there's interest. And then last of this word, rain, non-identification, that's the experience of there's no one who is lost, only being lost. Probably of any of the experiences that I've learned to be mindful of, this is the most important. Because we have two choices. We're either lost or we're here. You know, that's, that's it. Uh, and that's pretty simple. Um, the practice is really easy when we're here. And the practice is really difficult <laughs> when we're lost. And so to be able to have mindfulness of this experience of being lost, um, it takes a sting out of it. In fact, one won't feel so lost. or confusion. Having been here uh, for many falls uh, in Barrie, uh, 
I notice that the weather really cycles over the years in very extreme ways. Uh, So last year, the colors of the leaves, the reds, were very brilliant. uh, And it was quite rainy and wet that year. Um, This year, I noticed myself analyzing, oh, the leaves aren't as colorful this year. Why aren't they so colorful? You know, and then it's like, well, maybe it's because it's so, it seems so dry. Uh, it was so wet in June, what happened? You know, and then I noticed that the streams are very dry and that the leaves are drying up in a way uh, and blowing off uh, completely differently than last year. What's balance in nature? Would it be that there is a perfect balance of rain and dryness? Or is balance change itself? You know, so we get these extremes of wetness and dryness, and there's the balance in the change. So we're not meant to have this perfection of um, wet and dry as much as we have these rhythms over time. And human beings are the same way. We have these rhythms of change. And if we can understand that, accept that, uh, we'll find balance within the change. Uh, So please try not to think of balance as no extremes. You might find in a day of practice that you go from feeling like the most enlightened yogi and very clear and like you can't imagine being lost. I was talking with someone today about the difference between lost and fantasy and not. And you know, when you're lost in fantasy, you can't quite believe that the breath is really going to do it. And you try it, you know, you try that to pull out of the fantasy uh, and be with something like the breath or sound, and it just doesn't stick the mind sticks back to the fantasy. And yet, when we're in this other mindful place and we're really clear and we're interested in the breath or we're with the present moment experience, we can't imagine being satisfied with a fantasy. It's so tasteless. You know, the fantasy, it's like you can't imagine getting lost in the fantasy. What is that? They're just completely different worlds. And that's the rhythm. We get lost, and then it clears. We get lost and clear. Being mindful of that change itself is where the freedom and the peace is. There's a song (coughs) from um, a particular singer that Stephen and I like uh, from Honolulu actually from um, Y Manalo. Uh, and I think of this sometimes when I wake up like this. I won't sing it, but it, it goes, I'm tired and worn. I woke up this morning and found that I was confused. I spun right around and found that I'd lost the things I couldn't lose. You know that feeling when you wake up and you're confused and lost. And there's just that sense that you couldn't imagine when we lose something like the peace we had the day before or the clarity. The practice really changes. 
I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, if, if anyone in here, if you could hear the course of the change in identification and then seeing clearly in the course of just today, it would be astonishing, that amount of change. So when we're caught in the throes of identification or lust or confusion, it's really important to anchor. It's really important to find that nest. And as much as you can, do it. Even if there's a fantasy, what I've learned to do when I'm lost in a fantasy is to try as much as I can to ground somewhere as much as I can. And maybe be more specific with the note, with the fantasy. Maybe it's saving the world. So one says, oh, it's saving the world, saving the world. You know, just find some way of getting here a little bit. Come to the hands or the body. Sometimes I just note soothing. You know, it's like, I think of fantasy as like putting on a little security blanket. And I imagine that, that, oh, soothing, soothing. Finding some way to learn to get here with it. Because I found that with some mind states or some thought patterns, uh, they haven't gone away yet. You know, since 1975 and meditating, some have dropped away, but some haven't. And the ones that still have that grip that I find ways to just um, be patient but bring some clarity or presence within it so that the um, time of being lost here, lost here, lost here, uh, it accelerates. There's holes in the fantasy. It's like maybe five years ago there was one thought pattern that just seemed like a, a cloud front that came in and had no holes in it, no space in it. Uh, But just those little moments of coming back to the breath or the body or noting something gives some space. If one truly brings a non-judgmental attention to these more difficult, um, more, uh, how do you call it? It's like the uh, deeper karmic knot thought patterns. If one has patience, non-judgmental attention, even the thickest ones start to get space or holes in them. Recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification. One can see how we can apply that just to the breath. So maybe when we notice the breath, it's air element coming and going. And maybe that's uh, one experiences that in a moment of light pressure moving, or just movement, quick movement. <clears throat> Recognition is just noticing that. You know when you notice the breath and there's no recognition. But then when there's recognition, there's some um, direct experience of the sensations themselves. And then acceptance is just allowing this movement, light pressure, to come and go by itself. Now, sometimes when the acceptance isn't there, we can see what's happening because sometimes we we might want it to be deeper. Maybe it's shallow, (laughs) but we want it to be deeper. Or maybe we want it to be 
less refined. You know, we can't quite grasp it. It's kind of ungraspable. Uh, And we get frustrated. That's not acceptance. Acceptance is just letting it happen just the way it's happening. This is actually not so easy with a breath, to truly let it be just as it is. And then interest, we can't force it, uh, but interest is what allows us to really uh, notice that movement in that moment. There's no past, no future. We really see it as if it's the breath for the first time. There's something different in the quality of the awareness. The opposite of that is, oh, it's just another breath. Do I have to be with this? You know, there's, that's not interest. And when we have that sense like, I can't face another breath, you know you're not going to be there much longer. <laughs> Non-identification. There's a deep understanding with that experience that there's no one who breathes, only breathing. There's an understanding that it's not mine. Uh, So if those qualities or aspects of mindfulness are there, recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification, we'll have that experience of the breath. It just comes and goes by itself. And there's really nothing we have to do with it, but notice it. If we can learn to do that with a breath, Then when it's an experience that might be difficult, like loneliness, say loneliness appears, um, if we can let the breath come and go by itself and there's nothing we have to do with it, maybe we can apply the same way of relating to it. Maybe loneliness can come and go by itself and we don't have to do anything with it, but accept it. See what happens to it. Can we be interested in it? If we can be aware of the birth and death of a breath, we can be aware of the birth and death of our body. Now this is, this is why we're practicing. It's a, we're facing impermanence on a very profound level. But often we, we just get kind of bored and we forget why we're paying attention to the breath or thought. Even being mindful of pleasant things, um, we often forget to be interested. I think of the times when the cooks uh, delight us by maybe making a chocolate chip cookie or something, which is so entertaining here. You know, we often forget to be mindful. Uh, So maybe we're sitting there and maybe we only took one. Uh, and we reach for the cookie. And you know, what, what's recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification? Well, maybe we are lost in, you know, oh boy, a cookie. <laughs> we haven't quite gotten there yet, and so we're chewing, and suddenly recognition. Oh, chewing is happening. See, we go from being lost to clear. It just takes recognition, chewing, and then tasting. And then maybe it's pleasant, 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 and maybe enjoyment happens. So if enjoyment happens and we're not mindful, usually the next thought is, I wish I took two. (laughs) 
And then if we're not mindful of that, we don't even notice the intention to get up, you know. Or we're looking to see, you know, if there's any in the bowl. And we're gone. We don't, we don't notice the whole experience going up to the bowl. You know, so backing up here a bit, if we're noticing enjoyment and we can accept the enjoyment, not identify with it, it's not mine, it's just enjoyment, we can be with the birth and death of enjoyment. And we don't have to. We don't have to get to attachment. It's not to say that maybe wanting arises, and we let it come and go, and it keeps coming. And maybe we go back for the second cookie. It's not to judge that. It's just to be with this process, and to be mindful, and to see if we can be with the birth and death of the momentariness of the body and mind. I read a book um, recently called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Jean-Dominique Bobby. Uh, and it's about a man that um, at 43, he's the, he was the editor of French L magazine, had this unexpected massive stroke. I mean, massive. And it was, it's a rare kind of stroke that creates locked-in syndrome. Uh, so by the, when he had this stroke, he was in a coma for some weeks uh, and then only lived, I'm not sure, it doesn't really say in the book, maybe three-quarters of a year. But at some point when he regained consciousness, he only had the ability to blink his left eye. You know, talk about change. I mean, it, this man uh, blinked out this book in, in the afternoons. You know, he dedicated the book to the person who spent every afternoon, you know, learning his alphabet, bringing it out. And it's one of the most eloquent, clear books I've ever read. He had to memorize, he had to write each chapter, edit it and memorize it, and then blink it out. Uh, it's just, it's the most amazing story, actually. So I wanted to read, they're each just teeny little chapters, uh, and he's describing one of his discomforts. Uh, it's called The Duck Hunt. On top of the various discomforts, oh, I wanted to say why I'm reading this. Sometimes we uh, have aversion to things, so I thought this would be a really great description of massive aversion. On top of the various discomforts that accompany locked-in syndrome, I suffer from a serious hearing disorder. My right ear is completely blocked, yet my left ear amplifies and distorts all sounds farther than 10 feet away. When a plane tows an ad for the local park over the beach, I could swear that a coffee mill has been grafted onto my eardrum. But that noise is only fleeting. Much more disturbing is the continuous racket that assails me from the corridor whenever they forget to shut my door, despite all my efforts to alert people to my hearing problems. Heels clatter on the linoleum, carts crash into one another, hospital workers call to one another with the voices of stockbrokers trying to liquidate their holdings. 
radios nobody listens to are turned on, and on top of everything else, a floor waxer sends out an auditory foretaste of hell. There are also a few frightful patients. I know some whose only pleasure is to listen to the same tape cassette over and over. I had a very young neighbor who was given a velveteen duck equipped with a sophisticated detection device. It emitted a reedy, piercing quack whenever anyone entered the room. In other words, 25 times a day. Luckily, the little patient went home before I could carry out my plan to kill the duck. (laughs) Duck hunting. (laughs) I am keeping my scheme in readiness, though. You never know what horrors tearful families may bestow on their young. But the first prize for neighbors goes to a woman who emerged demented from a coma. She bit nurses, seized male orderlies by their genitals, and was unable to request a glass of water without screaming fire. (laughs) At first, these false alarms had everyone dashing into action. (laughs) Then, weary of the struggle, they let her screaming fill all hours of the day and night. Her antics gave our neurology section a heady cuckoo's nest atmosphere, and I was almost sorry when they took our friend away to yell, help, murder, elsewhere. Far from such din, when blessed silence returns, I can listen to the butterflies that flutter inside my head. To hear them, one must be calm and pay close attention, for their wing beats are barely audible. Loud breathing is enough to drown them out. This is astonishing. My hearing hasn't improved, yet I hear these wing beats better and better. I must have butterfly hearing. Sometimes we have butterfly hearing on the retreat and we get really sensitive. And sometimes a sound of a cough can just jolt us. Uh, And it's amazing how we can have so much aversion to just the slightest sound. And I always think about when I come out of retreat and I want to describe to somebody what I was struggling with, And if I describe, you know, (laughs) that I'm struggling with this sound, you know, the sound of this cough, I thought, you know, it was going to drive me crazy. Um, It all boils down to not being able to accept change. And that that, there's that quiet, and then there's that unpleasantness of that, whatever it is. And then we don't notice it. We don't notice that that's what it is. It's just that shift. It's very unpleasant. And then there's this not wanting. And if we we aren't mindful of it, you know, you can tell we get lost in so much reaction and pain. Recognition, acceptance, interest, non-identification. At some point, I finally became interested in that process. You know, how do I keep getting lost? 
and how do I become free? You know, we, we, we gradually become interested in that process and liberation starts to happen. Yesterday I went to um, what you might call a family reunion. A lot of my family was there in Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, what was wonderful about it was that there was the, you know, the great-grandfather all the way to the great-grandson uh, and that range of age, you know, and I feel like here I am at this age kind of um, being amazed that we can have even this range of generations uh, and appreciating, you know, how old some people are and how young some people are. Uh, so my 10-year-old great-nephew insisted that I take him for a walk. So we went for miles on these railroad tracks. Uh, and that's another story. And when we came back, you know, things were kind of tense in the house. So I decided we should go outside. And he wanted to play wiffle ball. So we played wiffle ball. You know, it's like baseball uh, for about an hour and a half. You know, and I was really getting tired. And I am so sore today. I can barely walk. You know, so I wasn't really appreciating today these range of generations. <laughs> I was thinking, wow, I know, I'm getting old. Uh, so at the time we were playing, it was about an hour and a half, an hour into it, I was huffing and puffing and getting tired. Uh, and he was pitching overhand. And I said, if you want me to keep playing, you're going to have to pitch underhand. And he looked at me kind of funny, and I said, you know, I was kind of acting like I was 10 years old for hours, and I finally said, you know, you're playing wiffle ball with an old lady. Uh, and he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, well, how old are you? And he doesn't know me very well. How old are you? He looked very upset. And I said, 46. And he looked like I was 150. <laughs> you know, it was that look of just utter disbelief somebody could be that old. <laughs> and I remembered that moment once when I was about that age where somebody said they were 22 or something, and it was like inconceivable that somebody could be that old. And it was so nice in some ways. You know, I don't like being so sore today. Uh, I like where my mind is at 46 or 47. I don't appreciate that my body is <laughs> not able to do what I could do. Um, but I've really seen that sense of being able to accept change. And so much of, um, I think, the wisdom and compassion that we can develop in our lives uh, comes from the mindfulness practice. It's that ability to anchor, nest, when we need to. It's like hunkering down, being here, but hunkered down in the nest, and then being fully present with a momentariness of change. So I really encourage you to try as much as you can to appreciate the birth and death of the breath, birth and death of sound, of emotions, mind states, 
There's nothing like the taste of freedom. Let's sit for a minute. May we all at times have butterfly hearing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.